Chapter 4. <clears throat> Here we go. School days at Fairview. My first public outbreak. A schoolmate. Drive to Falmouth. First drink at Falmouth. Disappointment. Drive to Smelser's Mills. Hot Setter's Bitters. The author's opinion of patent medicines, bitters especially. Boasting. More liquor. Difficulty in lighting a cigar. A hound that got in bad company. Oysters at Falmouth. <clears throat> and what befell of us while waiting for them. Drunken slumber. A hound in a crib. Getting awake. The owner of the hound. Sobriety. The Vienna jug. Another debauch. The exhibition. The end of the school term. Starting college at Cincinnati. My companions. The destruction wrought by alcohol. Dr. Johnson's declaration concerning the indulgence of this vice. A warning. A dangerous fallacy. Byron's inspiration. Lord Brougham. Sheridan. Sue. Swinburne. Dr. Carpenter's opinion. An erroneous idea. And temperance the best aid to fort. At the age of 16 I started school at Fairview. Then as now, an insignificant but pretty village some four miles from where my father lived. William N. Frasher, at this time professor of mathematics in the Butler University at Irvington, near Indianapolis, was the teacher in charge of that school, and it is to him that I am under obligations for about all the book learning that I possess. True, I went to college after that, but I merely skimmed over the studies that are assigned me. While at school at Fairview, I improved every opportunity to drink. A fatal instinct guided me to the rum shop. Cool. It was during the first winter of my attendance at the Fairview School that I was guilty of my first debauch. A young man from Connorsville came over to attend school, and I would remark in passing that his father was chiefly interested in sending him to Fairview because he thought that his boy would here be out of temptation. Jeez. He arrived at noon one day, and we were immediately made acquainted with each other an acquaintance which ripened into friendship on the spot. The roads were in good condition for sleighing, and the next morning I proposed a ride. He gladly accepted my invitation, and together we drove to Falmouth. At Falmouth we each took a drink, and this fired us with a desire for more. We drove to a house not far away where liquor was kept by the barrel, and tried to get some, but we failed, for we waited and we waited to be invited in vain, for no invitation was extended to us. Disappointed and half crazy for whiskey, we left the house and started on further pursuit of the curse. After driving about eight miles, we halted at a place called Smelser's Mills, where we were supplied with a bottle of Hothsetter's Bitters, which we drank without delay, and which was strong enough to make us reasonably drunk, but which nevertheless did not come up to our ideas of what liquor should be. My experience has been that about the worst and cheapest whiskey ever sold is that sold under the name of bitters, and it costs more than the best in the market. Excuse the word best, but certain parts of Dante's hell are good companions. I say to all and everyone, shun every drink that intoxicates, and shun nothing quicker than the patent medicines which contain liquor. And while you're about it, shun patent medicines which do not contain liquor. The chances are they contain a deadlier poison, called opium, at any rate. They seldom cure, and often kill. After drinking our bottle of poisonous slop, that is, hot setter's bitters, my friend and I began to boast, and each laboured hard to impress the other with his greatness. 
In order to make the proper impression, we agreed that it was highly important that we should demonstrate the large quantity we could drink and still be reasonably sober. I knew of a place a few miles further on, a place called Hittles, where I felt sure I could get whiskey without any immediate outlay of cash, a consideration of importance since neither I nor my friend had a penny. We went to Hittles and there I was successful in an attempt to get a quart of whiskey, which we once proceeded to mix with the hot satis article already burning up the lining of our stomachs. The effect was not long in appearing, for in a little while we were both very drunk and in particular was in the condition best described as howling crazy drunk. We stopped at a house to light our cigars, for of course we both smoked and chewed tobacco, and as my friend did not feel like getting out, I reeled into the kitchen and picked up a shovel full of coals, which I lifted so near my mouth that I scorched my hair and burnt my face, and, worse than all, singed the faint suggestion of a moustache that was visible by the aid of a microscope on my upper lip. While I was engaged in lighting my cigar, a large dog, a tall, lean, much-ribbed, lank and hungry-looking hound, went out to the sleigh, and my friend introduced him to accept passage with us. So when I got back to my seat, it was proposed that the hound should accompany us. I have often wondered since if he was not heartily ashamed of being seen in our company that day, but we made a martyr of him all the same. We drove off with a succession of whoops and yells and carried the hound in front. Our first halt was at Falworth, where we ordered oysters. The room in which we sat at the table was quite small, and a large stove whose sides were red with heat made it uncomfortably hot, especially for us who were already in a sultry state. I had not sat at the table a minute when I fell from my chair against the stove. My legs struck a hinge on the door, and as my friend was too much overcome to realise my condition, I lay there until the hinge burnt a hole through the leg of my pantaloons and then into the flesh. I carry a scar today in memory of that time, and the scar is about three inches long. The burn was over half an inch deep. God only knows what might have been the final result had not assistance soon come in the person of the owner of the house. He called for help and come in person. As soon as it arrived, we were placed in our sleigh and by a kind of instinct drove to Fairview. It was dark by the time we got into Fairview, but we contrived to get our, our horse. We contrived to get our horse, our horse, within the stable. That unfortunate hound into a corn crib, in which durance he howled so vigorously that the wild winds which whistled and shrieked around the barn could not be heard for him. His complaining lasted all night. And I do not think anyone within a mile of the crib slept that night. My friend and myself accepted. Aye, we slept. Slept as I have so often slept since a slumber as deep and oblivious as death. A drunken sleep from which we awoke to suffer hell's tortures so justly merited by our conduct. I woke with a throbbing, aching heart. But by slow degrees did I become conscious that I had been somewhere in a sleigh and done something either very desperate or very foolish or both. At first, my mind was so muddled, so beclouded with the fumes of the infernal bitters and whiskey, that I had thought I'd burned a city. While I was trying to solve the mystery of my course, I was aided by a revelation so sudden that it startled me, for the owner of the hound came galloping up and fiercely demanded to know where his dog was. He rated us severely, accused us of stealing the animal, and threatened to prosecute us then and there. I knew what we had done. In the meantime, someone opened the door of the crib, and turned out the hound. He must have recognised the voice of his master, for he joined the latter in his howling, and between them they gave us good reason to wish that our ambition to keep that dog's company had been in vain. The dog was more easily pacified than the man, 
but finally on our offering to give him free plugs of tobacco to hush up the affair, he became quiet and smoothed and raged in front of his anger. On, ordering, on adding a cigar or two to the plugs, he brightened up and said we might have the darned hound anyway if we wanted him. But we had had enough of his society and we were willing to part from him without further expense. I don't think, seriously speaking, that I ever suffered more keenly from the strings of remorse and fear than I did for one week after this debauch. The remarkable part of it to me was our determination to take the dog. All my life I've disliked dogs, dogs in general and hounds in particular. I resolved never to drink again and sometime I kept the resolution. A few weeks following this spree, there was an exhibition at the schoolhouse and several of the larger boys, myself among the number, assembled themselves together and after consultation decided that in order to make the exhibition a success there should be a limited amount of whiskey secured for our special use. We took up a collection, each contribution a few cents and two of the largest and tallest and stoutest boys were dispatched to Vienna, a small village three miles distant to get it. A vision of hounds passed before me but the desire to get a drink drove them yelping out of my memory. The boys, on reaching Vienna, bargained for three gallons of liquor. Three gallons! and brought it to our general headquarters. It was wretched stuff. The vilest, meanest, rottenest poison that ever under the name of whiskey. The boys who got it had carried it the three miles by passing a stick through the handle of the jug. They got drunk on the way back with it and one of them fell into a branch, dragging the jug and the other boy after him. Unfortunately, the jug was not broken and fortunately the boys were not seriously hurt. It was a little after dark when they stumbled across the meeting house yard to where we were awaiting for them. The following day, we attacked the contents of the jug, and before midnight, we were all drunk. Some rather moderately loud, some rather very drunk, and some dead drunk, as the phrase is. I myself was of the number that were dead drunk. Some of the boys kept sober enough to fight, but I never would fight, drunk or sober. I do not think I'm a coward as regards personal courage, and I really think the fear of hurting others restrained me from ever mixing in brawls in those days. As the night wore away, or two or three of the boys became sober enough to hide the jug, which they concealed in the corn shock. These dragged the rest of us to bed, although one of the party woke up in the wood box with his head downward and his feet dangling over the top of the box. Only those who have been so unfortunate as to be in similar condition can realise our state of mental and physical feeling. Parched lips, scalded tongues, cracked throats, throbbing temples and burning shame were indisputably ours. So we awoke on the morning of the day set apart for the exhibition, an exhibition in which we were to appear before our respected teacher, friends and relatives, besides all the people of the surrounding country. Early in the day we commenced to get ready for the afternoon's work by resorting to the same jug that so recently had bereft us of temporary reason and laid us in the mud and snow. I only got one big drink of poison and so contrived to get through passably well with my part of the performance. Some of the boys got too much and failed to remember anything so that they failed utterly and hid behind the curtains and, taken all in all, we did little or nothing towards the success of the exhibition or to making those interested gratified with our parts. Some of the boys who figured on the stage that they are dead but others are alive and of those I am not the only one writhing in the coils of the serpent of alcohol, though not one of them has fallen so low as I. If at that time I might have been permitted to lift the curtain and look down futureward through the unlighted years of shame and weariness and suffering, I think the dreadful vision would have stayed with me forever in a career which had only grown darker and more unendurable with every step. I kept on much in the same way, increasing in length and frequency my ever-recurring debauches, 
until the end of school term. I was well nigh 20 years of age and from this place went to Cincinnati to attend college. Here the opportunities to gratify my hereditary appetite made keen and sharp, and even keener and sharper by indulgence. My companions were older and further advanced on the road to ruin than I. My steps were more swift than ever before to tread the path which leads surely to the everlasting bonfire. I could not fail to notice while at college that the most brilliant and intellectual, those whose future prospects were the most pleasing and bright, were the very ones who most frequently drowned their hopes and sapped their strength and energy in alcoholic stimulants. Oh, vividly do I recall to mind examples of heaven-bestowed genius, talent, health and abilities, sacrificed on the worst and bloody tacali of his hideous, slimy devil and temperance. How many masterminds, instead of progressing sublimely through the broad, deep and august channels of thought, became impeded by the meshes and clogs of intoxication, and were thus worse than prevented from exploring the regions of immortal truth. How many dallied with the sirens of the wine cup until all power to grapple with the great subjects was lost irrevocably? How many are the instances in the world's history of great minds debased and ruined by alcohol? Look back and around you at the lives of the brightest literacy geniuses and see how many are under the spell of this circ's baleful power. Think of the rich intelligences whose brightness has prematurely faded and died away in the darkness of an alcoholic night. What hopes has alcohol destroyed? What resolves it has broken? What promises it has blighted? Think of any or of all of these things and hasten to say with Dr. Johnson that this vice of drink, if long indulged, will render knowledge useless, wit ridiculous and genius contemptible. Oh, how many lost sons of earth whose lamps of genius blazed only to light their pathway to the tomb might have achieved an inheritance of immortal fame but for this vice, or disease, as it may be. I write this with a hope that it may be a heeded warning to the intellectual of earth, not less than the illiterate. The educated man is more liable to suffer from strong stimulants than the man who is not educated. Never was there a greater or more dangerous fallacy than that so often urged that the thinking functions are assisted by the use of stimulating liquors or drugs. Oh, say some, Byron owed a great portion of, insp ins of his inspiration to gin and water, and that was his hypocrine. Nonsense. His highest inspiration came from the beauty of the world and from God. Lord Brougham, it has been declared, made his most beautiful speeches of old port. Sheridan, it has been told, delivered some of his most sparkling speeches when half seas over. Eugene Sue found his genius in a bottle of claret, Swinburne in absinthe, and so on. But who shall say that? But who shall say that these great men lost and will lose in the end by forcing process? Dr. W. B. Carpenter, in referring to the supposed uses of alcohol in sustaining the vital powers, says empathetically that the use of alcoholic stimulants is dangerous and detrimental to the human mind, but admits that its use in most persons is attended with a temporary excitation of mental activity, lightening up the scintillations of genius in a brilliant flame, or assisting in the prolongation of mental effort when the powers of the nervous system would be otherwise exhausted. Concede this, and then answer if it is not on such evidence that the common idea is based that alcohol is a cause of inspiration, or that it supports the system to the endurance of an unusual mental labour. The idea is as erroneous as no less prevalent fallacy, alcoholic stimulants increase the power of physical exertion. 
Physiologically, the fact is established that the depression of the mental energy consequent upon the undue excitement of alcoholic stimulants is no less than the depression of the physical energy following its use. In either case, the added strength and acceleration are of short duration, and the depression and loss exceed the increased energy and the gain. The influence of alcoholic stimulants seems to be chiefly exerted in exciting to activity the curating and combining powers, such as give rise to the high imaginations of the poet and the painter. It's not to be wondered at that men, possessing such splendid powers, should have recourse to alcoholic stimulants as a means of power, procuring often temporary exaltation of these powers and of escaping from the seasons of depression to which they and others of less high organization Jesus, of power... Okay, I'll start that sentence again. It is not to be wondered at that men possessing such splendid powers should have recourse to alcoholic stimulants as a means of procuring often temporary exaltations of these powers and of escaping from the seasons of depression to which they are, they and others of less high organizations are such. Jesus, the guy's taking cocaine right at this point. Must be. That's that's a damn long sentence. Nor is it to be denied that many of these mental productions, which are most strongly marked by the inspiration of genius, have been thrown off under the inspiration of the stimulating influences of liquor. But it cannot, on the other hand, be doubted that the depression consequent upon the high degree of mental excitement is, as already observed, as great as the first in its way, a depression so great that it sometimes destroys temporarily the power of effort. Hence, it does not follow that the authors of the productions in question have really been benefiting by the use of these stimulants. Hello, rest. It is the testimony of general experience that where men of genius have habitually had recourse to alcoholic stimulants for the excitement of their powers, they've died at an early age, as if in consequence of the premature exhaustion their nervous system. Mozart, Burns, Byron, Poe and Chatterton may be cited as remarkable examples of this result. Hence, although their light may have burned with a brighter glow, like a combustible substance in an atmosphere of oxygen, the consumption of material was more rapid, and though it may have shone with a more sober luster without such aid, we cannot but believe that it would have been steadier and less premature without it. We may also doubt that the finest poems and the finest pictures have been written and painted even by those in the habit of drinking while they were under the influence of liquor. Would you not usually find that the men most distinguished for their combination of powers called talent or genius are disposed to make such use of alcoholic stimulants for the purpose of augmentation of their mental powers for the spontaneous activity of mind itself which alcohol has a tendency to excite is not favourable to exercise of the observing faculties, which are so important to the imagination, nor to those of reason, nor to steady concentration or any subject where profound investigation or clear sight is desirable. Of this we have an illustration in the habit of practical gamblers who, when about to engage in contests requiring the keenest observation and the most sagacious calculation, and involving an important stake, always keep themselves cool, either by total abstinence from fermented liquors, or by the use of those of the weakest kind, in very small quantities. We find that the greatest part of intellectual labour which has most extended the domain of thought and of human knowledge has been performed by men of sobriety, many of them having been drinkers of water only. Under this last category may be ranked 
Demophesines, Johnson, Haller, Bacon, Milton, Dante, Johnson, it is true, was a great tea drinker. Voltaire drank coffee at times to excess, and occasionally a small quantity of light wine. So also did Fontenelle. Newton solaced himself with fumes of tobacco, of Locke, whose long life was devoted to constant intellectual labour, who appears independently of his eminence in his special objects of pursuit, one of the best informed men of his time. The following explicit testimony is found by one who knew him well. His diet was the same as that of other people, except he usually drank nothing but water, and he thought that his abstinence in this respect had reserved his life so long, although naturally his constitution was so weak, in addition to these examples, which I have quoted at length, I might also mention the case of Conorar, the old Italian philosopher, who at the age of 35 found himself on a bed of misery and imminent death through intemperance. He amended his way of life, and for upwards of fourscore years after, by a temperate course of living, lived happily and did all the important work which has placed his name among the men of great intellectual powers. Christ, that was a long one. That's a strange sentence, isn't it? I think he basically means that these drunk geniuses would have been like geniuses for longer had they not been drunk. And who knows, their work might have been better with more life experience rather than dying young. I think that's his point. Bye. And